Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. Hey there, thanks for joining us on PixelSiv this week. As usual, we'll be looking at the news and issues from the video game world. My name is Mitch, and this week well, I'll be taking over the driver's seat from Johnny, who is happens to be on holiday in sunny Hawaii. Not really sure what I think about that, but you know. All right, anyway, joining me this week, as well as Scott, we have a special guest pr- presenter, Brad Power. G'day. Hey, man. And Scott, you know, hello, hello. what's up? Yep. <laughs> Brad is a lecturer in games, art, and design at Murdoch University, and I just realized might be one of the more qualified people we've ever had on here. <laughs> anyway, um, this week, yeah, we have um, a couple of interviews. Oh, we have an interview and a couple of topics. I think everyone has a lot of trouble talking about their PhD <laughs> without um, and making sense of it to people who aren't kind of stuck in the middle of it. That was Lisa Evans, and we'll be finding more about her later. Uh, We'll also be discussing the Australian government's recent funding cuts to over 65 arts organisations and its effect on the Australian gaming industry. Lastly, we're going to be talking about beta burnout, where the timing or length of beta access for a game can actually negatively affect its impact at release. All that today and more on episode 33 of PixelSiv. Let's jump into it. You're listening to PixelSift. Or you might be watching PixelSift on Twitch. PixelSift. So starting off today's episode with something a little bit serious. Uh, since our last political-related topic covering the Senate inquiry into the video game industry, the Australian government has cut funding to the arts with 65 separate orga- organisations losing funding. Uh, many of these organisations will be unable to, to survive, and with our government leading towards high art, a much-beloved gaming industry here in Australia faces an uncertain funding future. Now, this is nothing new to us, uh, especially people in the arts and culture uh, industry. It was just two years ago we were talk, uh, dealing with the government cutting $100 million from the arts, and we lost our Australian Interactive Fund. Uh, but it's kind of sad at the moment because it felt like we were on the way uh, to something better. Um, and now this. Yeah, I think it can definitely be one of those things that makes you go, oh no, are we going to go through all this again um, mm. when these kinds of you know initial slow snowball effect um, trickles of, of problems start seeping in and you, you start wondering about the future. But I think the other thing is that um, it's really important for communities uh, in Australia to have support because it's the communities that end up um, funding uh, games and it's, it's only when we work together in Australia um, that we are able to actually 
push through and get games out there. So when funding cuts like this happens, it's not that it's affecting a single games company, it's that it's actually affecting a whole community. Yeah, it shines that doubt um, for the whole community. It's, un- it's instability. It's instability, sorry. Um, this is something kind of we've been looking for here. It for does seem that our games culture here is just in its infancy at this point, and I think to, it needs all the help it can get. And I, it, it seems like we were getting the games like culture was getting the scraps of what was left from screen. Was, and that seems like what, what yeah, I was interpreting I mean, there's been a push for the certain kind of allowances that are made for the TV uh, and film industry to be pushed onto the gaming as well. Uh, what with, you know, travel allowances to, uh, you know, just to keep up to date. Um, but it, like with the, the Senate inquiry that we spoke about just a couple of weeks ago, I, I was really kind of, I felt that it was a really positive push that we've kind of been missing since the uh, removal of the interactive fund. Um, and yeah, like I said, this just kind of derails that whole movement. But like, it's it's about. I feel like it's about the game industry needing to be taken uh, seriously as a viable economic kind of uh, resource and export. Because um, you know, like I said, we're only growing. And like, yeah, I mean, infancy is probably the, the wrong word. I reckon when you said that, I'd, I'd say the, the Australian gaming industry is really great. It's been strong, and it, it's just finally getting noticed. I think that is the real thing. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think it's all about critical mass. It's about the community, whether it's in, in Melbourne or whether it's in Perth or, or wherever, or just Australia as a whole, being big enough to be visible and visible enough to get funding. Um, and in cases like this, um, you know, when funding gets cut, that affects the ability of that community to exhibit their works or get local or international exposure, get talked about on, you know, Pixel Sift or get picked up by something, something you know, Kotaku or whatever. It's a really big setback. And as an example... You know, in WA, we get some funding, um, but it's it's quite hard compared to places like Victoria, which do have a reasonable amount of funding for arts. So, um, and that enables events like Free Play and even things like GCAP and PAX to kind of exist because, um, you know, uh, Melbourne has that kind of, or Victoria has that kind of arts fund. So it's hard here in WA. So as an example, just locally, if you look at Let's Make Games and the Perth Games Festival, which they've run successfully the past couple of years, and they've grown that each year. And this is just volunteers... You know, it's not coming with any particular funding. And they've grown that to the point now where it's starting to be visible. It's it's grown each year. People are starting to take notice. And it's at the point where local or state government could actually start giving it some funds. If something like that down the track gets cut, it's almost like it it kind of wastes all that effort that's been done to push something to get as visible as it, as it can be. Um, that all kind of goes down the drain when the funding goes away. Yeah, you're right. And uh, like it's... The gaming industry is not alone here. Um, the whole, right. like, so much of the arts uh, community in Australia. I mean, we're fighting it with community radio, and like you said, it feels like we we're just doing this. You know, twelve months ago, twenty-four months ago, even you know longer than that. Um, and it feels like these kind of the digital realm for community radio and just the games industry in general uh, really need to kind of be taken seriously for what they're pushing forward. I've got some nice stats here from the uh, research released by the Interactive Games and Entertainment Association found that the industry saw digital sales growth by 27% over the last year to $1.589 billion to surpass traditional retail sales. And these, these are stats from last year, I must say. Um, but retail sales also increased by 2% to $1.243 billion. So, like, this is a growing industry with serious money, to, like, to splash around. Um, uh, to play yeah, devil's sorry. advocate here, like, uh, do, you, do we know how funding works, let's say, in America, where the video game industry is massive and like brings in the dollars like do you I have one, no idea. one could argue maybe that if it was such a viable industry why does it need funding 
Yeah, I think in the US, um, you're looking at it, it's kind of like comparing apples and oranges. It's, yes, it's I, such I, yeah. a it's such a different yeah. um, environment yeah. over there, and there there is a lot more funding. There's a lot more venture capital. There's, mm-hmm. You know, there's all that kind of stuff. If if you're talking about indies, right? Because obviously right. the big the big studios are established. Yeah. And this is the point. This is all about you know a tree that's established versus a little a little sapling that you're trying to get off the ground. What we're looking at is um, you don't want. I, I wouldn't want people to think, oh, the games industry is looking for a handout here. This is something that we, we need. It's like Kickstarter. You know, you need something to get off the ground. Once this is off the ground in Australia, the community can start giving back in, in the form of, you know, taxes and sales and all that kind of stuff. It will contribute to the economy. But it's something where you're, you're kind of denying it the chance to grow in the first place. We're, we're looking at a case since the GFC happened, you know, in sort of 2009, 2010. It, it feels a bit like a burn back, you know. A lot right. Of, a lot of AAA or or however you want to call it, studios that did exist in Australia at the time kind of got, you know, decimated. Um, and that's turned into a lot of, you know, a lot of talented people either left the country or they started little indies here. And those are like little, you know, sort of like the regrowth forest, right? And they're kind of starting to grow. They're going to get to a point soon where they're, where they're flourishing. Uh, and I think that's when it's, you know, it's going to be payback time for Australia and we're going to, we're going to see a really great games industry. And what we need is we do need some support until that time. Yeah. I think there's definitely more to talk about, I think, in the future regarding that one. Look, I don't think we're... And as I said, we've discussed, been discussing this kind yeah. of almost on the date for the last year and then the year before that and then the year before that. So we will come back to this again, when it's uh, sadly. <laughs> Excellent. Let's check out our next topic. Pixel Sift. <laughs> Pixel Sift. No, seriously, Pixel Sift. No, seriously. This week, Johnny spoke to Lisa Evans. She's a PhD candidate from Murdoch University and game developer from Stirfire Studios. And she spoke all about using games in research, what considerations you have to make, and serious games. Lisa explains what her PhD is all about. I think everyone has a lot of trouble talking about their PhD <laughs> without um, and making sense of it to people who aren't kind of stuck in the middle of it. I'm Lisa Evans. I've had a bit of a, what would you call it, like meandering kind of careering, um, kind of both games and science, because I started off doing um, physics when I was at uni, you know, back in the 90s. <laughs> I wanted to be an astrophysicist, but then ended up deciding not to pursue that and getting involved in 3D animation instead. And um, I've been working in animation and games for since about 2003, sometimes in, you know, various little kind of game companies around Perth but um, also sometimes doing more kind of film type work. Yeah I mean I I basically wanted to combine you know the work that I've done in games with just my kind of interest and passion for science and wanting to see look at um, how you can use games to communicate science. It was really interesting to me looking at the way that people are kind of struggling to communicate um, big global problems like global warming and the, the rising sea levels. When you talk about science and things not being communicated well, what are some of the problems you think that science has had in getting their message across to people and communicating these big ideas? Part of it comes down to there's two basic models in science communication. There's a bit of a tension between them at the moment. And um, the traditional one that's been around for decades is described as a public understanding of science model where... The idea is that there's this public, which are people who aren't scientists, and they have 
um, they're kind of they're treated as though they have something wrong with them. There's something missing in their understanding, and that just needs to be corrected. And so the idea there is that science communication is about basically giving them information and just fixing that what they call the deficit. The deficit model actually um, is very ineffective because it treats people as though there's this big inequality in the um, power relationship between scientists and non-scientists. When you disempowered people, they, they're not very receptive to what you're trying to say. They just kind of, um, a lot of people will just reject it. The alternative model to that is um, that's coming out now is the public engagement in science model, where the idea is to try and put everyone on more of an equal footing. So scientists and the you know everyone who isn't a scientist are all members of the same um, community and all faced by the same serious problems. And really, it should just be a collaborative effort to understand what the problems are and how they affect everyone and um, what's really the, the, the biggest priorities to solve. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, you've got a dialogue or even, um, you know, a group effort to solve problems rather than this kind of monologue where it's just information going from scientists to members of the public. So that's um, one of the ideas kind of at the core of what I think um, is that the, the whole point of using games to communicate um, science is that it's, you, it, I mean, games are engaging and you're, you want to engage people in, in um, the, the problems rather than just kind of lecture them about them. My, my aim was to take some uh, software that has actually been used in scientific research, which is, um, it's, it's called Planet Simulator. I just, I looked at a lot of different uh, models that have been used for, um, modeling um, global circulation and um, um, the Earth's atmosphere and things, but also with vegetation and things like that built in. And so I found one that's a, it's a, um, a simulation of intermediate complexity, which makes it kind of relatively easy for me to use, but it still needs to be run on a supercomputer. You know, you can't build a real-time planet simulation type game around that software, but you need software of that level of complexity in order to really explore uh, the mechanics of, of um, you know, all the different variables that I wanted people to be able to just kind of play with in terms of, you know, um, moving a planet closer to the sun or further away and changing the amount of land and water and things like that on it and um, choosing the level of carbon dioxide and things like that in the atmosphere. It kind of turned out that I just had to pre-simulate pre a whole bunch of different choices and then build basically a choose-your-own-adventure game where um, you just have to make these choices and then see what the consequences are and then um, find a pathway through all the different simulations until you come up with a planet at the end that's livable for the... because you're a planet engineer making a, 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 a new home for an alien species that have lost their former home. So when, you, when you're designing a game like that, was there a way that you could have dialed it down or do you need the complexity of proper planet modelling? Yeah, um, I mean, that's... Most of the games out there that explore kind of the, the same issues... They use much simpler models, and um, the, the problem, though, is that um, I think that to really give the people the sense that they can play, you know, in different senses of the word, with a planet, you kind of have to have a bit more scope to, to, to make bigger changes and take bigger risks and then see... Um, the kind of non-linear effects that that's going to have because the more complex it is, the more you start to see these non-linear effects of 
um, different uh, feedback cycles and, you know, runaway processes. So, you know, in, in the game, even as I was doing the simulations for the game, I just kept surprising myself with a lot of the outcomes, you know. I mean, if I I created a, a planet that was basically like Earth but without any carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and then add um, oceans to it, it just immediately turns into a snowball planet just completely frozen over and I wasn't expecting that to happen right away and um, so there's things like that that are just really surprising that you don't you're not really going to get if you have a much simpler um, simulation which you can then you know you can run it in real time and build a real-time simulation game around it but <laughs> won't necessarily get those really surprising results and with people playing your games, have you seen sort of, uh, you know, interesting stuff from the way that they are actually interacting with it and the way that people kind of approach it? What kind of surprised me was that, you know, people get very intimidated and don't really want to make choices that seem like the wrong choices, which I was hoping people would want to then, you know, explore all the wrong, you know, quote, wrong choices, because they're not really wrong. They're just, um, you know, I, I wanted them to be there to kind of explore and play with. But, you know, a lot of people just, you know, even when they're just playing a game by themselves and nobody's, you know, I mean, as part of a study, you, you're feeling like someone's watching you, so you don't want to do something that seems stupid. But, um, yeah, there's this level of self-consciousness that a lot of people have, and so I, I need to make it a lot friendlier and um, less intimidating. But then people who didn't have that effect, they started really playing with it and and trying to break it and trying to see how far they could push it and unfortunately I didn't really allow them enough scope to to be wrong which was one of my um, big revelations when I finally had a play test. When you're designing a, a study like this all sort of studies have to go through sort of an ethics board and um, all these sort of things what's the process of kind of approaching an ethics board and explaining your your, your project to them is it still relatively simple and still very uh, you know within the sort of uh, you know knowledge base of the people who kind of tick things off um, it was mostly relatively simple because I was mainly drawing from um, methods that have been used by other research teams in the past and they'd obviously had their you know ethics approval in the past and you'd demonstrate that we weren't really doing anything different um, but it did turn into there was a quite a bit of debate um, apparently over the use of games in research and how um, you know, I mean, there's this sense that games can really change people's behaviour and and um, and kind of change the way they think about particular things. And um, in actual fact, when you look at the evidence, it is actually really hard to change people's behaviour using games. I mean, there's been all this research on violent games and whether that makes people violent, and a lot of it has shown that actually, in, for, for the most part, it doesn't. And in some people, maybe it actually gives them an outlet that makes, means that they're less violent in real life, you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, it, it, it did take a little bit of discussion over um, that aspect of using games in research. But yeah, it's a really interesting thing. And, and when you do um, talk about serious games, a lot of people just assume you mean educational games for kids in schools. And um, I get that a lot of the time. And I'm just, you know, I, I haven't really gotten a particular age range that I want to um, target with my game, but it, it is really aimed at um, adults as well as, you know, any kids that might want to play it. Um, and that's, that's a very interesting concept for a lot of people. And that was Lisa Evans, and you can find more about find out more about her work at worldofchoices.org. And I encourage you to sign up and have a go and get involved with the project. Pixel Sim! 
It's not Pixel Siv. It's Pixel Sift. Pixel Siv. So, uh, what we're going to talk about now is beta burnout. And many games these days, particularly large, complex online games, and also really big, eagerly anticipated releases, offer a beta period. And that's where people can download and play the game before release. And it's supposed to be a good thing. It's supposed to help the developers get feedback from the public before the game is released. But what happens when a game when the gamers hammer the game during beta, and by the time release comes around, people are over it, and the servers are a ghost town? What do mm. we think? It seems to be happening a lot more nowadays when, like, betas seem to be almost like they don't even consider them test periods. It's pretty much the game at this point, and people are basing their opinion on the beta so hard that they pretty much consider it a release. Yeah, so do you have any particular game in mind when you're talking about I this? I think a couple of that come to mind that fell prey to this particular beta burnout concept that, by the way, I may have thought of just then... Um, <laughs> The crew, the um, Ubisoft car simulator yeah. that allowed you to form like a, I guess, a raid party of cars yeah. and evolve. Right, which, evolve, yeah. Yeah, which, which both, I think, fell on their face for two reasons. The crew, I think, offered, I think, a little bit too much of its own gameplay in that in the beta period like yeah. you could explore almost the entire map and everything was pretty much in there and people realized that maybe it wasn't really worth shelling, shelling out, out the hundred dollars for when it actually did come out or i think it was maybe 80 or 90 when right. it came out. but the evolve beta because it's primarily multiplayer all of it was in there and you'd expect it to be in there well most of it anyway but i think there were too many betas mm. there was like a pre-alpha an alpha a mm. beta mm. No, um, oh, wait, early access beta, sorry, then a public one. And then I think the public one went on for almost two weeks. Yeah. And yeah. by then, people were very excited, me included. I couldn't wait to play it. But after the beta period, it just fizzled out almost. Everyone and, had and, lost interest. And everybody had, had their fill. Yeah. I guess there's one, I guess one thing to, to wonder about is the scope of the game. So you have obviously baited for games before, and you'll yep. have a different perspective than just a, the average Joe that hasn't been involved in the beta so yes. you know there's some people that aren't being exposed to the game before release but i i kind of i feel like there's a parallel here you know when you sometimes see a uh the teaser for a movie you know you're going to see a movie and, and you see the the trailer for a movie that's coming out and you kind of get all the plot points and maybe they even use the funniest lines <laughs> in the trailer and you're kind of sitting there going why would i pay to see this movie now you've i've kind of gotten all the bits you know it's that fine line, I guess, uh, w with having to release something out there into the world where you need people to be interested in it, and like, but you don't want to kind of play all your cards. So you know, you, your game's eventually like basically just been defeated in its beta stage. Yeah, I um, think. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, it's, it, no, that's it. It's just uh, towing that fine line between uh, you know giving the people enough to keep them interested, and you know not giving them too much to you know ruin them for the pre uh, for the actual launch. Right. So to put on my my professional hat here, and you know talk about how awesome I am as a, <laughs> as a game developer right and yeah. having been involved with this process for the release of, of games before um, beta is really meant to serve a purpose it's meant to serve a, a testing purpose and we kind of talked about that but really what we're talking about now is the idea of beta almost as a marketing tool it's almost as a sneak peek of a game right and and that's kind of how it's being used so 
and and you mentioned a couple of things, alpha and pre-alpha and all these kind of different stages that a beta can go through. And I think one of the problems we're seeing here is that those stages aren't being necessarily handled correctly. And I think it, and an example of a game that's done this right is, is Overwatch. Mm-hmm. Overwatch, I think, has nailed the, the way in which a beta happens. And I guess to explain what, how they've done that, I need to make the distinction between alpha and closed beta and open beta. Right. Right. So alpha is when you are you have a game that's so it's really so early that it, it's not really for public consumption. It's just for the devs and, and maybe a couple of closed people to to test. That doesn't stop people releasing games early access yeah. into alpha, right? And maybe we shouldn't have a conversation about that because I'll start <laughs> steaming through my ears. Um, closed beta is when you release to a group of people that's that's private and exclusive and it's small enough or it's it's big enough maybe is the better term it's big enough that it's enough people to test out the game without releasing it to the public okay and that period that closed beta period that is exclusive that most people don't know about you want to go on I would say for as long as possible. And what I mean by that is as long as it takes to work out all the kinks and balancing issues from the game. And this is primarily multiplayer. And that's primarily multiplayer. Yep. Some games that are single player would go out for, for closed beta, but but really it's it's going to be the multiplayer games because mm-hmm. multiplayer introduces so much complexity, um, yes. especially in terms of you know the meta game, right? And, and the idea of oh, what, what strats and tactics and different combinations of items can I use to wreck other people that the developers didn't realize that we were going to be able to do. So you get all that sorted out during closed beta. And that's maybe, you know, it could be anywhere from a couple of hundred to a couple of thousand people. That's not going to affect your sales at launch. This is just a small portion. Right. That got me thinking when you said specifically like public beta, it was like that kind of defies the point of being beta and for me in general like the general public shouldn't be playing this game until it's re- like until exactly. it's actually ready uh, and that that's how, where you're going to get all these people getting over the game before it's even launched because they're playing it in an incomplete form so they you know their opinions tarnished before they even get there the closed beta is the most important bit, bit there that's where everything should get nutted out and kinked out like before it even this shouldn't even like it should be so good that the, the need for a, uh, f- a follow-on beta isn't even really necessary. That's exactly right. So that open beta really does become a sneak peek. Yeah. And it does become a marketing a tool. quick, and that's it, just and a small sneak peek. The idea yeah. is you don't want, as a games company, you don't want to learn anything new during no. the open beta period. You want to learn things during the closed beta. You don't have enough time. Look at, look at Overwatch. It comes out, what, the, this week, right? Yeah, and I believe so. In the next couple of days. <laughs> and it's just come off. Uh, open beta so do you honestly think they're changing anything between open beta and release no the only question they would have had to answer is how can our servers handle the load and this is this is blizzard right Mm. this is blizzard they know what the oh okay no actually the the diablo 3 (laughs) release was a bit of a problem but this is exactly what you're saying by open beta you are releasing a a polished game and you should be doing it for a couple of days it's a test run to make sure that like you said the servers and everything and you've got the right load so it seemed that the more you release maybe the less time Correct. Open beta, yep. and the less you release, maybe more time, yep. and maybe identify exactly what you want to achieve. And I think gamers need to remember that the beta is actually not for them. The, right. It, uh, really, it's not. I mean, they can participate, and yes, it might be fun, and the end result, okay, yes, the end result is for them, mm. ultimately. But the the idea of a beta is to teach the company something. Absolutely. And when people base their opinion off the game because of the beta i think it's largely incorrect yeah and yeah. i think that that's definitely what applies to the closed beta i mean if you've signed up for one of those things you know it really does look like this is about a feedback mechanism for the mm-hmm. company whereas an open beta and eh, they don't really care no. yeah they've they they should already they shouldn't be, yeah, they shouldn't yeah neither should they exactly. i guess a couple of games so overwatch is another game that did it well i i particularly think the destiny destiny did it well yeah. in the beta like yep. they offered us 
a decent amount of the an okay amount <clears throat> of the story and all uh, of the multiplayer you could ever want as far as a <laughs> yeah. beta burnout goes um i feel homefront uh, oh, okay. had you know piles mm. of negative feedback um and i don't i didn't actually well, sorry i didn't actually participate in that myself so i don't know right. but i feel that that was a perfect example of something put forward to too many people too early like because you just had that many unhappy people like quitting after the first match even less than that you have people actually quitting out rage quitting after five minutes and then jumping to reddit to take it up there right was that like that's bad for business was that due to the server not working uh that was due to uh last gen graphics um the whole thing being mediocre at best um yeah servers were a bit like connection to servers were buggy um yeah there was and i just i don't know lots of things like i said it's a shopping list of problems for that one that was just one little example i dug up well i think i mean in in contrast so we were just talking about overwatch and, yeah. and blizzard have really i mean they're the masters right um mm-hmm. and and i did say you know the diablo 3 launch was a bit problematic people can couldn't get on servers at the time then they've learned from that right so the overwatch open beta went super smoothly and i guarantee the release will go super smoothly yeah everyone and, seems super happy about overwatch right and that's because it did spend a long time in closed beta it's been a, f- a fair while there and and that was too i mean i didn't have a beta key maybe i don't think did you guys have beta no, keys no, no, no. closed yeah no right but I, I jumped in and open yeah right right so yeah. so it's a closed community that it, that had that and that's not going to really negatively affect their sales yeah i think blizzard absolutely knows what's what <laughs> yeah. yeah they do it well <laughs> anyway awesome did you know Pixel Ziv is available on other platforms? You can find previous episodes on iTunes, Pocket Casts, YouTube, and on the Pixel Ziv website. Thanks again for joining us on Pixel Ziv. We've hoped you've had well, you hope you've enjoyed the show. It has come to an end, sadly. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for Brad for joining us. No worries. Thank you, Brad. As usual, you can find links to all the episodes on or on our like all the links to the items we talked about on this episode at pixel at www.pixelsiv.com.au scott where can people find us on social media mitch people can find us at <laughs> facebook.com forward slash pixel sift twitter.com forward slash pixel sift twitch.tv forward slash pixel sift and youtube.com forward slash pixel sift au and brad if people want to listen to other episodes of the show where should they go uh, they should go to pixelsift.com <laughs> au. Uh, you know, you can go to a uh, website to stream the episodes. Yep. And Subscribe as a podcast, either on iTunes, <laughs> iTunes Pocket Cast, or using the RSS link on our page. Awesome. And then while you're on iTunes, if you give us a review and a star rating, that would be great. And as Johnny is on holiday, we're going to be used this time to have a little time off to ourselves. Don't worry, though. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. And with the regular show. If you like what you've been listening to, make sure to tell your friends. And thanks again. We'll catch you in a few weeks on Pixel Series. Catch you later. If you're in the market for a super addictive puzzle game, you have to check out Mini Motorways on Apple Arcade. It's a city planning strategy puzzler with an incredibly satisfying gameplay loop. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. 
Head to sifter.com.au slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today. That's sifter.com.au slash arcade for a free one-month trial of Apple Arcade, and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. New subscribers only, $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. 